Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, we continue our short series of conversations with documentary filmmakers whose films will be featured at the New Hampshire Film Festival, which takes place in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, from October 12th to the 15th. Head on over to the festival website for schedule information. Both of the films discussed on this episode explore life for women in worlds usually dominated by men. First up is my chat with Olivia Kwan, the director of a documentary called The Hurricanes, which tells the story of the Houston Hurricanes, one of the teams that in the 1970s made up the first ever women's full tackle football league, known as the National Women's Football League. Just so happens that Olivia's mother played safety on the Hurricanes for four seasons. Later in the episode, I speak with director Maggie Contreras, whose documentary Maestra follows five internationally-based women as they prepare for and perform in La Maestra, the only competition in the world for female orchestra conductors. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum, from providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs. Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. Hello, Olivia Kwan. Welcome to Making Media Now. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be speaking with you. You are the director of a great documentary called The Hurricanes, H-E-R-R-I-C-A-N-E-S. I don't usually spell the name of uh, the films that we're talking about, but in this case, I think as we uh, continue to talk, it'll become apparent why I am spelling it. Share with our listeners um, who The Hurricanes are and your special connection to the Hurricanes. Yeah. So the Houston Hurricanes were a women's pro tackle football team from the 1970s. And uh, one of the people who played for that team was my mother. Uh, (laughs) So this is kind of an untold story about a group of women who broke broke barriers in order to uh, pave way for future women in the sport of uh, football, which is, you know, very much so a, a sport that we don't really think of women playing even to this day. Now, were you uh, were you on the scene when your mom was playing? Um, I was not. I uh, came around a bit later in the 80s. Growing up, how, how much knowledge of information about the hurricanes and your mom's role? She was a safety, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So growing how up- much how much did you know about how much was that part of the family lore? Yeah. Growing up, I knew that my mom played football and she used to take me and my sister out to the street to play football and gave us very basic training in the sport. You know, as a kid, I didn't really think it was remarkable in any way. Um, I would hear these stories and be like, oh, yeah, another mom story. Okay. Um, And it wasn't until quite a bit later that I started putting it together that this is actually kind of spectacular. Um, so, so I did grow up with it and it was, uh, you know, a part of the background of our lives, of our stories, but it wasn't really until quite a bit later that it became important to me. Was there any particular impetus that, that made you want to seek out this, uh, this story and to find these other players and uh, learn about these other teams? At a certain point, I started to, uh, tell fewer people that my mom played football, um, cause 
when you become a teenager, you sort of want to fit in. And that is definitely not something you tell somebody if you want to fit in, especially because a lot of people would just reject it as false in one way or another. Um, So uh, I think that kind of always was in the back of my mind as being irritating. Um, And, you know, myself, I have been working as a cinematographer in the film industry for, uh, I guess it's 15 years or something like that now. And I don't know how much you know about the film industry, but it's very uh, male dominated, especially in the field of cinematography. So I think I started to draw some parallels between my mom's experience playing football in my own life. Hmm. And, um, you know, eventually decided that it needed to, this was a story that needed to be told. And I had a chance to do it because I had that real connection. What did you learn about uh, your mother's experience and her teammates' experience that in it, that drove them to want to take this really unorthodox path uh, in, in terms of sports? I was, of course, looking... F- I was asking that same question that you just asked of them, and I was surprised to get repeatedly the answer was we just wanted to play football yeah over and over again that's what each of them said and you know i i was surprised because this was you know, how could someone be so passionate about something that they've never done before that they are willing to take these risks and make these sacrifices um but that's uh honestly that that is the plain and simple truth is that they just wanted to play football and they had always wanted to do it in their lives and they might not have thought about doing it before but um it was always something that they loved and they wanted to partake in and um that's what brought them together and that's what kept them going through the whole thing yeah and for listeners who have not seen the documentary first of all you got to see it and then secondly you know when when uh olivia references playing football this is playing football these are pads these are helmets it's the full uniform it's the 100 yard field all the same rules and when you watch the footage if i didn't know that there were it was women playing you wouldn't know that it was women playing there's nothing different about the way the uh the game was being played and so of course it's it's the same sort of strategy and the tackles and the hits and the blocks and so forth and you know your 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 film brings out the fact that it was practiced three times a week and the expectation set by their coach, a guy named Robert Massey, who was a really interesting guy I want to hear more about, um, you know, we're just, we're, was just the same. One thing that was very different was the compensation. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think so. They are professional technically because they did get paid something like 25 cents a game. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they, they broke that barrier. Now it definitely but- sounds like filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. But they didn't have any sponsors. They didn't have any, they weren't really paying for themselves through ticket sales or anything like that. So they would do fundraisers the same way as you would do in school for whatever club or sport that you're doing, like where they would go out and do car washes and whatnot. Um, so the, the the level of pay was uh if it ever existed, very, very low. And, you know, definitely wasn't supporting any, anything outside of just fueling their passion. Um, they all had real jobs outside of this uh, experience. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't their bread and butter, so to say, mm-hmm. um, which is tough because, you know, we're kind of in this place where um, 
the level of play in women's sports, especially ones that are just starting out like football, is a lot lower than in men's sports. And, you know, how can you blame them if they're having to work their full-time job and then go to practice afterwards? Uh, it's just they're not able to put in the same amount of um, time in order to build their skills the way that the professional men's sports are able to do. What did you find out about the extent of injuries that, uh, that the women uh, experienced playing in this league? There were definitely injuries. My mom was actually one of them. She, um, you know, wasn't able to finish her last season because she uh, broke her foot playing football. She got into the pile and somebody stepped on her foot and it was broken for the rest of the season. Um, and pretty much every player has some story about some injury that resonates with them even to this day. Um, one of the players has had both of her knees replaced, for instance, and um it's a, uh, you know, it is a violent sport to be sure. Um, and that's, that's part of what they love about it. <laughs> um, uh, me personally, I'm not like a person who really wants to get that rough with people, but yep. that was part of what these women really wanted to do. The, the film also, uh, I, I like the uh, sort of the timeline approach that you take wherein it's uh, very archival a lot of you know footage of the league in the 70s and the in the league was the nwfl yes that's right yeah, the, so the footage from the 70s of of the league and then you intersperse it with more contemporary commentary and also a lot of contemporary footage of women today uh playing uh in in, in football leagues both all all female teams and and also uh, co-ed teams i guess we would we would call it but when we talk about the history your film brings out the importance of a piece of 1972 legislation that references title nine so uh talk about the relationship between title nine and female sports yeah, so Title IX was passed in 1972 as a part of a much larger bill. And um, it was a very small part of that bill, but it's, you know, arguably has made the most impact. And it basically just said that no school can discriminate on the basis of sex in any program or activity. And um, the everything else, like, you know, classes or whatnot sort of fell in line pretty easily, but sports became a real argument point in, in that issue. So from 1972 until today, there's just been a lot of evolution in what exactly that means in terms of sports. And, um, you know, to this day, I would argue that n nobody is in compliance with Title IX as far as athletics is concerned. Um, but, you know, it's the reason that, um, gym classes were no longer segregated between boys gym and girls gym it became physical education for for everybody and it's also the reason that we even have girls sports in schools so for instance basketball back in the 70s there were intramural basketball teams for girls it was just within the school itself and they were only allowed to do half court now today uh you know depending on where you are in the world there are a significant more an uh, amount of um, schools that have parity in the sport of basketball. Um, and, you know, the, the amount that that has changed society, you can argue has been vast because sports teaches you things that you don't learn in a classroom. It teaches you camaraderie. It teaches you teamwork and um, leadership skills that are just 
essential to living a really full dynamic life in a professional sense. Um, and so it, that this is, this is the core of the reason why this all matters in the documentary. Like we're talking about football, but it's really about creating equal opportunity for everybody. And, you know, there, there are some people who, uh, want to play football because it really speaks to them and that will make them the strongest version of themselves. And that's what that's, we just want to open the door for everyone to find that for themselves. Yeah. One surprising thing that I learned from your film was that uh, uh, women's football teams are actually more popular in Europe than they are in, in the U S did that come as a surprise to you? That was a huge surprise. I, uh, that was a very serendipitous moment that I found that out. Um, my roommate at the time, I was talking to him about my idea to make this documentary and he said, Oh yeah, I used to have a crush on this girl who played American football in Sweden. And I was like, what? So, uh, went and followed that, uh, rabbit hole all the way to Europe. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it kind of uh, reminds me of the development of soccer in this country because I feel like women's soccer over here has developed so well um, because it's kind of a niche sport in America where it's the kind of the reverse in Europe where American football is not a major sport right. across the board right. yet. Um, so it kind of allows this uh, fresh start for women to start anew. Going back to the hurricanes in the 70s for a minute, uh, they were a powerhouse. Uh, they they were undefeated. You know, troopers, they were a powerhouse. And yeah, we're, we're not too far where I am right now from Toledo. But yeah, they were an incredible team. And they have uh, gone down in the history books as being the winningest team in women or in any football, men's or women's. So tell me a bit about Robert Massey, the coach of the Hurricanes. And, you know, what kind of a mindset did he have to possess at the time to, you know, uh, to take this unorthodox position of coaching a all-female football team? Yeah, Robert Massey, uh, unfortunately, he's passed. So, and I really wish I could have met him before he did. But he's such an interesting person because he was a pastor um, at the time. He was, um, you know, very devout and had very traditional beliefs and yet found himself in this situation where he was coaching women's football, um, where he was meeting a whole diverse group of women who may not have shared the same beliefs that he did, but uh, they were all there for a common goal and uh, found commonality and love despite their differences. Or maybe, um, you know, that was even part of it. But um, he originally came to the team because um, his sister-in-law was involved with the team. So Robin Massey, who was the manager, was uh, sisters with one of the players. And um, that's kind of... Uh, the story with the other coaches as well, where they were, um, uh, one of them came from uh, another marriage relationship to a sister of one of the players. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a great uh, reunion quality to your film also. Uh, how closely did the players on the Hurricanes stay in touch after the team and the league disband disbanded for a while? Yeah. So the Hurricanes, uh, 40 years after they split up, had not talked to each other in decades. Oh, wow. Um, a few of them stayed in touch for a little while, but you got to remember that originally these women all came from different walks of life. Like they weren't coming from the same neighborhoods. They weren't coming from similar backgrounds. So as they had to go back to their regular lives, 
they just kind of diverged off into those directions. And it was also a time before social media, before cell phones. And if you moved apartments, then your phone number would change. So it just made it a lot harder to keep in touch with people. And eventually they all, they all dispersed. Um, but luckily, um, uh, we were able to find so many of them and bring them together for a reunion, which we show in the end of the film. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's really powerful that, that it, it, I, there was a great line where, uh, these women who hadn't seen, seen each other in decades, uh, somebody said, uh, I was looking at your eyes. That's how that, that's what let me knew it was you. No, it was you. Yeah. 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 Cause even if they hadn't seen each other in decades, it's that kind of thing where you, you still know that person at their core, sure. like that never is going to go away. It's kind of like going, I don't, I don't want to minimize this, but going to war with somebody Yeah. Um, where I was thinking maybe they recognize those eyes because they had seen them peering at them through a uh, face mask on a football helmet. Yeah, that's true. It's the only piece of the person you could actually see. <laughs> exactly. So you and I are chatting in advance of your film being screened at the New Hampshire Film Festival, which will be running from October the 12th to October the 15th in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I know that uh, Hurricanes has been really uh, warmly received on the festival circuit. You're, you won the um, Audience Award, the Doc Spotlight Audience Award this year at South by Southwest. Tell me a little bit about the response from audience members that your that your film has been receiving. Yeah, I I have been blown away by how many festivals we've been able to screen at. Um, I was honestly just not expecting that at all. So we we've kind of gone all over the country with this film and it has a universal quality in that there's there's somebody in every audience who is just so moved and uh, feels like they're, the film is telling their story in a way. Um, so, you know, every audience is a little different. There are some places where you get a laugh here and the others where you get a laugh over here. But overall, I've, I've been just every screening I go to and I sit through and uh, enjoy talking to people after the fact. Well, I was predisposed to really enjoying your film. The second, the first title card came up because you have this Ralph Waldo Emerson quote to to start the film that says, do not follow where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and make a trail. And you have certainly made a, fi a film about trailblazers. Yeah. And uh that that was a quote that was introduced to me through one of the players and that was her message to me and um i was like well that's the message of the movie as well um and yeah, it's a it's know. a it's a powerful message and it's a powerful and and uh really fun film for football lovers for sports lovers for people that are interested in seeing what trailblazers look like who really weren't even considering themselves trailblazers. They were in the sport for the love of the sport and the opportunity that that, that opened up. So uh, we've yeah. been speaking about the Hurricanes. As I said, it will be playing at the New Hampshire Film Festival. Um, is there a plan right now for distribution uh, and finding an audience beyond the uh, festival circuit? We are working on it. Uh, we don't have anything locked in right now, but I'm hoping that it'll be on streaming sometime next year. Wonderful. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. Olivia Kwan is the director. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Michael. 
Next up is my conversation with Maggie Contreras, whose documentary Maestra follows five internationally based women as they prepare for and perform in La Maestra, the only competition in the world for female orchestra conductors. Here's the trailer for that film. Very soft, timpani, Second violin coming. The job of the conductor is multifaceted. You have to have the capacity to read a score and make it your own, and that's a very complex process. So, uh, going from measure eight with the fermata, and it's going to be one da 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 dun da 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 dun, right? The next responsibility is to set the tempo and keep the tempo. You have to keep everyone together. Yes. Remember in your head, one, two, three, one, tida. Their voice is in their hands, so watch their hands. Cellos and basses, I feel like we're just kind of going ta 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 Every single note is important, like You have to have a great ear. You have to really be able to hear what's going on, be able to discern uh, what's wrong, what's right, intonation. Violins, when we get to... It's the slurs. That's where the crazy is there. Accent. And then the conductor has to convey an emotion. That's the most important thing. Is this piece transformative? Is it revelationary? Is it sad? It's all about narrative. Everything in life is about narrative. And can this person tell a good story? Hello, Maggie Contreras. Welcome to Making Media Now. Hi, Michael. Very happy to be here. It's great to be speaking with you, and congratulations on making your directorial debut with just this beautiful film uh, called Maestra. And it is beautiful to look at, it's beautiful to listen to, and the human stories within this documentary are also just so compelling and rich and beautiful. So really, congratulations on this achievement. Thank you so much. It was a really incredible world to be able to live in for a couple of years. So if the um, sort of the log line or the synopsis of the film isn't clear to folks uh, by its title, Maestra, uh, explain to our listeners what a maestra is and uh, essentially uh, what the uh, the plot of your documentary is. The term maestro is probably familiar to people. Maestro, yes. We rarely hear the word maestra. Mm -hmm. And that's because when we think of an orchestra conductor, we tend to have a caricature in mind. That caricature tends to be more male, uh, older, and more authoritarian. Uh, whether that uh, maestro is real um, or is a cartoon character. <laughs> yeah, I had read so some statistic that of the, uh, I think it, I think the, the data went back to 2020, but of the, of the top 100 orchestra conductors, only eight were female. 
Yes, the percentage we have in the film that uh, Deborah Borda, the CEO of uh, the New York Philharmonic, says it's top leading the top orchestras of the world is less than three percent women. Wow! Wow! Yes. So, so in order to lift up women in this space, the I'll, I'll take a step back and say that uh, conductor competitions are not uncommon. Uh, competitions are important for conductors because oftentimes that's how they show what they can do. Unlike a single instrumentalist who can pick up their instrument and perform an audition, a conductor needs an opportunity to gather up to a hundred instrumentalists because the orchestra is their instrument and a competition allows them a way to do that and uh, gets the people in the room who are decision makers for their careers. So the Paris Philharmonic and Paris Mozart Orchestra uh, in 2020 launched the first uh, biannual, so every two years, competition called La Maestra, and it takes place at the Paris Philharmonic. So women from all over the world apply and 14 are chosen to go through three rounds of elimination. Um, they all use the same orchestra. Um, they don't know what music they're playing other than their very first one. They have to learn a lot of music to be prepared uh, because it's literally drawn out of a hat what they'll play that next day. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, for us and for the film that I hope your listeners will see, even though I thought I was setting out to make a a competition film and documentary competitions are are not uncommon. I could name off a few spelling bees. One's about spelling bees. One's about science fairs. <laughs> like people love a competition doc. There's a sort of innate uh, narrative structure, something to root for, right. built into it. I sort of accidentally. I mean, I don't know if I really believe the word accidentally, but it, this became a women's empowerment film. Of course, it was going to be because this is about a competition about women breaking glass ceilings for the purpose of purposes of helping them to do just that. Mm -hmm. But when you dig into the lives of these incredible women, and I could have I could have followed all 14. And I'm sure that every single one of those 14 was going to have a fascinating life journey, um, hurdles they've had to overcome ways they've had to navigate this space uh, and i we landed on five and so we follow these five women as they prepare for the competition how did you uh, immerse yourself in the in the world of classical music in the world of the relationship between the conductor and the orchestra is th- is this a world that that you come from that you grew up around i grew up around classical music lovers I, my parents didn't have pop radio on ever, um, ever. I don't know if it's because of just their tastes. They were older parents. Um, my, my mother had the classical radio station in Tucson, Arizona on all the time, (laughs) all the time. She has counts, accounts of her, um, being listening to classical music when she was pregnant with me 
dancing around the living room. Uh, she had records, like records of classical music recording, orchestral recordings. And my father, if he wasn't listening to talk radio or to classical music, um, he uh, was listening to traditional charo music. He's Mexican-American. So I was the nerd who knew who uh, the difference between Ravel, Stravinsky, but I did not know that um, that Linda Ronstadt was a <laughs> pop star. I thought she was a Spanish language artist. Sure. I thought she, because Canciones del Mi Padre was the only thing that my dad like would play of yeah. hers, yeah. not, not, not her Laurel Canyon stuff. So my access to music was limited and broad all at the same time. Um, and then when, like, yeah, so whenever there was an opportunity to see live orchestral music, my mother would make sure we were there. Mm -hmm. So we weren't necessarily buying tickets for the concert halls, but we were at every single public performance. And did that, did that, did that, did that music take hold on you and your head and your heart? Or, you know, sometimes it will have the opposite effect with kids and they'll rebel against that simply because of the nonstop exposure. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. It can go either way. I mm -hmm. know people who it's like, Oh, I can't stand listening to classical music because my parents listen to it all the time. Yeah. It was the, it was opposite for me. It created a landscape. So for me, it was a, it was, it would, trigger uh i'm a very visual person and it would trigger um it would it would trigger scenes for me it would trigger a whole fantasia inside of my head mm -hmm. um i remember making my best friends when we were like five six seven eight we would like create we would create scenarios around what we were hearing in the music and we weren't thinking about it i mean that sounds like oh how interesting no we weren't thinking about it we were literally just doing it we were putting on costumes we were dancing around we were creating oh this is dark and scary now and oh this is they burst through and this is light and exciting now like we were we were we were um it was almost like our mini ballet yeah, <laughs> of kids yeah. at play with classical music as a background and um yeah it just was always around um and it gave me comfort and it gave me inspiration and when fourth grade rolls around and band was accessible to us in school. I, you know, I woke up that extra hour early so that I could take my rented flute, which I still, I now own and Ooh, have man. still, <laughs> <laughs> I never passed that first Yamaha, but I still have it. Um, so that I could be so that I can make music. <clears throat> so that was my exposure. Uh, I always sought it out. It was always something that felt like music that was for me that I belonged to, mm -hmm. which I'm grateful for because I understand how the world of orchestral music um, and Western classical music sometimes feels exclusionary to people or it feels beyond their reach or somehow that they don't belong in that building. Right. And that's very, very false. Tell me about the very uh, particular and and vital relationship between the orchestra conductor and the orchestra. So in the film, one of our um, conductor experts puts the relationship between a conductor and 
their orchestra in the most perfect visual. He describes the conductor as a lightning rod. Mm-hmm. It is about energy. You have, and I'm quoting him, you have the orchestra in front of you, you have the audience behind you, and the conductor is like a lightning rod. That music is going from the musicians through them or through them to the musicians. You've got the energy of the of the audience behind you, and it's mm-hmm. all interconnected. But the what is creating that energy is the conductor. So I thought I knew roughly what a conductor was before I made this film. I, I didn't. I think most people, even people who uh, feel like they have an understanding of the music um, from a consumer's perspective, I don't think they really, really understand what a conductor does and why then representation is so critical. Yeah, I've often thought if if. In, in in not being aware of that crucial element of the relationship, I've often wondered, you know, if this conductor right now uh, became paralyzed, would the orchestra stop playing or would the orchestra would the orchestra continue simply because of their knowledge of the piece that they were playing? And I'm wondering in the in the cre- in the making of your movie, did you have any instances where you saw multiple conductors conducting the same piece? but bringing out different aspects of the performance from the orchestra based on their styles as conductors. I'll first answer that by saying that, um, that conducting is about interpretation. Mm -hmm. So to make it a little more familiar to most people, if you ask five different film directors to to make the same script right let's say rocky one of the rockies pick on they're going to have five different films for you to watch it's going to be the same words written by the writer and for me the for music it's written music but you have to have someone interpreting what they think the writer meant And in this case, with Western classical, oftentimes, most of the time, that writer is no longer alive. So it's up to the conductor to not only dig into what they think those notes on the page, what what the writer of that music meant, but also what it means to them. It's going through their lens. It's going through their personal experiences. It's going through their view of the world. Mm -hmm. So it's very exciting to think that we haven't heard every piece of great music delivered in all ways that it can be delivered. Imagine that. Like, uh, imagine if people we've never seen on the podium before and their life experiences and who they are and how they see the world, if they did. Don Giovanni, what would that sound like? And, you know, uh, it's, it's, I get asked about, oh, well, can you really hear the difference? Many people can. And I would say if you're in the audience, you can feel the difference. Um, There's a sequence in the film where I'm trying to show this. So the same pieces of music were 
very often played multiple times because you drew it out of a hat. There were only so many combinations. Mm -hmm. So the same pieces of music would inevitably be played by, by different people. Mm -hmm. And in the film, you see intercutting, you see the same piece of music and two different people in this case playing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And many people have come up to me after watching the film and saying, wow, I really, I could really see and hear the difference. Some people can't and some people can. (laughs) So it, it depends, but I can assure you it's very different. When you were referencing the La Maestra uh, competition, uh, you noted that it, it begins with 14 candidates. How, when you were planning your film, how did you decide uh, which of the candidate conductors you wanted to focus on? Uh, and w- what were what were the considerations you were taking into, into mind? So whittling down uh, 14 candidates to what you see in the film, which is currently five, um, was always going to be a challenge, but I also knew that no matter whose story we chose to follow, it was going to be fascinating. I am, give me any one of your listeners, put them under my lens, and I promise you I'll find an interesting story. So putting that aside, how do you follow a competition? Um, Like much art, I feel as though when you're forced to have a limited palette, sometimes beautiful things, oftentimes beautiful things come of that. So for us, I don't want to go on about COVID too long, but this is a COVID film. We did make this. uh, We first picked up the camera at the fall of 2021. And we were very lucky that two weeks prior to the competition, Paris eliminated their mask mandate and we didn't have conductors conducting with masks on. Right. But what that did do was limit which countries I could go to. Uh, And in in one case, there was an incredible woman from Hong Kong who couldn't even leave to go to the competition and she had to be replaced by the alternate. Mm -hmm. So I did have limitations with location. And then like many documentaries that are independent, Uh, Even though we do have some sparkly names attached to this film, I'm very lucky about that. We were not fully funded. Funding this film was horrendously difficult because oftentimes uh, we would get the first time director excuse or Mm -hmm. more often than not, oh, classical music, not too sure there's going to be an audience for that. Um, I think we're proving them wrong. Yeah. So funding, long and short, funding also dictated where we were able to go and not go and when. So I had to start off with who was in the country I was currently in, which was the U.S. Hmm. And we had three. So you have a woman in Atlanta. Um, she was the only American in the competition. So I, I knew she was going to be followed for sure. Then there was a student at the um, University of Michigan. So I I spent some time in Michigan. Uh, We can get into it, but, you know, in documentary, you don't 
use all of your footage. Otherwise it'd be a 400 hour long film. <laughs> so she did not make the cut of the film. And then there is the Melise, the woman who was born in Paris is French and her life path landed her in Iowa. So she was the first person I went to go see, um, for many different reasons. The way this film started was in an RV in the middle of winter with one camera going <laughs> to Iowa and then going to Michigan and then thawing out in Atlanta. <laughs> and how the film ended was a three camera, 19 person crew in Paris following the people we had already been following as they prepared plus everyone else plus the competition in paris it was a pretty incredible way to start and way to end very very different um so i ended up filming six sorry i've ended up i ended up filming with seven of the 14 and then five are in the final cut and and the uh, the women that you do focus on, there are so many unique and compelling, and not always pleasant uh, backstories, life stories that they that they are bringing to the competition, that they are bringing uh, into their work. There's tales of uh, of abuse, uh, rampant sexism, uh, and in in sort of just everyday. Um, adult concerns around things like family planning and balancing, you know, work and ambition. Um, how did their individual stories reveal themselves as characters, real characters in, in, in your film and through their art? When I first was given access to these 14 incredible women, um, I did initial zoom inter pre-interviews with them mm -hmm. so that we could start forming a rapport and a few stories immediately stood out to me um, one is zoe zenioti who is based in athens athens greece and um, who told me the story of being fired when she became pregnant with her twins mm. so the fact that there can be discrimination against pregnant women was not shocking to me because it's a fear that I have myself, even though I live in the United States. But the fact that it happened to her so blatantly mm -hmm. is something that should be illegal. I knew that that was going to be a compelling story. Plus, she's single parenting, really with twins and she put her she decided to put her career on hold for five years and not travel and a conductor has to travel for the most part a gigging, gigging conductor so seeing how she chose to spend her 40 to 45 year old life um something i'm not too far behind and the choices that she made were very personal to me Sure. And I wanted to spend that time with her and explore that with her. Malise, who is the Parisian who ended up in Iowa, immediately she was fascinating. First of all, she asked her, the competition is in her hometown. And what does that mean? And in 
her case, that means going back to a place that she feels as though closed its doors on her. Um, she, when I think of archetypes, she feels like that prize fighter in a ring. She feels she's always swinging. She's had, she's, she's been swinging punches for her whole life. Mm. And the way she approached this competition was swinging punches and watching her prepare, not only physically, um, but mentally and emotionally for this competition, uh, was absolutely fascinating. And she, she had the most to gain and the most to lose. And she, her stakes were the highest, whether how, however she was going to do in the competition, her stakes were the highest. And I really wanted to, to follow that. Um, there were world events that happened. Russia invaded Ukraine a week. Well, let me be more specific. Eight days before the competition, Russia invaded Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Of the 14, one was Russian and one was Ukrainian. And so I immediately trained my lens on them as soon as I had access to them, which was in Paris, and getting the perspective of not just not just their perspective, but also how the threat of potential nuclear war in Europe, because that's where we were. That's where we were at that point in time when we were filming. We were thinking this could actually spread and we are currently in Europe. And what does this mean? So everyone was on edge. Everyone was aware of, um, what, of what was going on. There were, when we landed at Charles de Gaulle airport, there were, uh, there were people in fatigues leaving to go to address what was happening on the world stage. Yeah, so it was that, very, that's a it was real a, world consequence. Absolutely. So what did that mean for the competition? What did that mean specifically for the Ukrainian woman who's in the film? And you know, what was she dealing with on an emotional level? I think at the end of the day, how I was drawn to these stories is we're, we're dropped in. We all have an ambition in life, no matter what that is, uh, whatever that looks like, we all have an ambition and we all have hurdles to overcome. And that right there is, is, is drama. That is story. And it's, it's interesting. Even the most mundane things, sometimes the most mundane things are so relatable Mm -hmm. that they move us on the deepest level. So the idea of the the concept of family planning, which 50% of this population has to think about um, and how that affects their career, just because it's sort of a common thought. If you really dig into the heart and soul of one individual who, who, who that means everything to them right now. And you connect with them on that very, very deep, raw soul space, that's going to translate to the screen. And hopefully that's going to affect the, the viewers. And we've, we've seen on the festival circuit that it has, like this film starts a lot of conversations. Yeah, one of the things I really enjoyed about your film uh, was in a number of instances uh, how physically imbued with this passion for the music and for conducting that, uh, a lot of the people, the women that you focus on are and the way they incorporate it into their everyday lives, whether it's when they're uh, uh, hanging out with their kids or when they're just moving through their day. It's it's almost as if they are the uh, embodiment of the music that they're going to be drawing forth. 
uh, from from that orchestra. And you and I are speaking in advance of the film's uh, screening at the New Hampshire Film Festival, which will take place in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, from October 12th to the 15th. Uh, you had shared with me earlier that you are going to be there, so there's another incentive for listeners. Come meet the director uh, up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. What is, uh, aside from the festival circuit, or in addition to the festival circuit, what's the plan uh, for getting the film out into the world? You're grimacing. <laughs> oh gosh if this was if this was any year but 2023 i feel like i would have a solid answer for you this has been a particularly difficult year for uh, independent film since the films that premiered at sundance all the way through the south by southwest films us the tribeca class there are very few sales going on and unfortunately this film is caught up in the state of a changing industry that is right. the definition of Hollywood 2023. So what we have is something that people want to see. I have people reaching out to our Instagram account, which is at Meister Movie. Um, we have people reaching out to our Instagram account all the time saying, hey, I live in Australia. When is it coming here? I live in Tampa, Florida. When is it coming here? I want to see this film. I want to see this film. We have people reaching out saying, hey, I love your movie poster. I want to hang it in my office. Like, <laughs> where can I get that? People want to see this movie. Yeah. So we have an obligation to make sure that that people are able to hear these incredible stories. I have an obligation to the subjects, the humans in this film. I have an obligation to the competition this is about. Um, so the plan is to continue to figure out what the plan is at this point. Is, there, a, uh, is there an outreach program yeah. in, in place for the film? So we are, yes. Okay. So we are in the, I have an incredible team who has done this before. Um, Melanie Miller is one of my producers. She won the Oscar for Navalny this last year. Oh, she wow. has done this a million times with her films out of necessity, where we've had to figure out how do we get it to different international territories? How do we get it to people's computer screens, home screens, and also we have concert halls. And if, if you, if you're associated with, um, with a, if you're associated with a music program, a concert hall, uh, an educational program, you can request to see this film mm -hmm. and we will find a way to bring this film to you. That's what I can say right now. Um, also shameless plug. We're nearing the end of the year. We need to, an impact campaign. Uh, for this film to be able for it for it to be seen and it's tax deductible so if you really want to see this film you haven't figured out how to do that yet or it hasn't already come to you by the time you're hearing this go to at Meister movie and let us know you're interested and we can tell you how to support and I will make sure that all of the necessary social links and the link to that uh, the website that you just mentioned are in the program notes for this particular podcast episode. I have been speaking with Maggie Contreras. She is the director of a documentary called Maestra. Maggie, congratulations again on this accomplishment. It's a beautiful film, and thanks for your time. Thank you. 